Today I'm talking to Richard Nairn. Richard is an ecologist and writer. His latest book is Wild Waters, which is the third title in a trilogy which includes wild woods and wild shores. He is a lifetime naturalist who has worked as a nature reserve warden and was the first national director of Birdwatch Ireland. He lives on a small farm in County Wicklow. Hello, um, Mary, and nice to speak to you as well. Can you tell us where you are and just explain when you were looking out of your window earlier when we were chatting, what you can see, just to place the listeners. Okay, I'm um, at home in County Wicklow and I live on a small farm um, in, a, in a valley on the east side of County Wicklow. Um, I can see a, a rocky mountain in the distance called Carrick, which is the Irish for rock, of course. And in between me and there, there's a deep valley. Uh, our land slopes down to the bottom of the valley. Um, we have a lovely wildflower meadow there at five acres. And uh, that uh, stretches into an area of old woodland, which is in the valley bottom and has the river flowing through it. So we're very fortunate. And uh, every day I get inspiration from just looking out the window before yes. I even go out. That sounds beautiful. Um, and you've written a couple of books before, Wild Woods. And um, what, what are your other books that you've written? Because I know we're going to talk about the new one, mm. Wild Waters. Yeah. Well, this is actually the seventh of seventh book that I've written. Um, the first one was exactly 25 years ago. It was about Wicklow, called Wild Wicklow, actually. And uh, since then, I've written about the Irish coastline, um, bird habitats, uh, Dublin Bay, um, uh, then the Woodlands book you mentioned, and another, my previous book was Wild Shores, which is about um, the Irish coastline. And uh, this is the third in that series, the wild series, as I call it, um, which are all written um to a similar style, um, introducing the idea, the concept um, with a kind of personal theme of my own experiences and travels, and then leading from that into the, um, the wonders of nature in those various different environments. Yes. And is there a stream on your land or where is your... Yeah, nearer? there is. Yeah. Yeah, it's a short, uh, fast-flowing stream that comes off the hill that I describe. And um, after a day of heavy rain, it's a rushing torrent. And then a day later, it dies down. It only could be a foot deep, you know. So it's uh, it's uh, quite variable, yeah. And what kind of wildlife is associated with that stream? Um, well, uh, amazingly, um, well, there are trout in it, for instance. Uh, mostly small, not much bigger than my hand. Um, and there are otters using it. I see a fresh otter sprint on, on rocks in, in the middle of the river. And um, I've actually photographed an otter using a sensor camera um, at that point in the river. Um, and uh, there I have dippers. There are dippers nesting just uh, about half a kilometre upstream under a bridge and they come in occasionally. Um, lots of other birds. We have woodpeckers breeding in the woodland. 
nothing to do with the river, of course, but um, using some of the old trees with the dead wood and lots of other things. Because the ground is quite wet, we get uh, woodcock in there in the winter, uh, probing the soil um, and some amazing flora as well. Mm -hmm. So we're in the barn here and I think everybody knows a bit about the botany here if they've listened to this podcast all along um so we'll talk a little bit about the differences in botany but we were talking just before we pressed record do you have a special animal or is it birds that you're particularly connected to no um i'm an ecologist so i'm interested in the whole ecosystem um and uh, any aspect will fascinate me if it's something I haven't seen or discovered before. Um, and I'm just as interested in insects or mammals or wild wild plants um, as I am with, with birds. Um, What's your in current, of the, current interest? <laughs> current interest? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> just today, um, or this week, sorry, um, we had a white-tailed eagle flew over us. Now, it didn't stop. It just passed over, and I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought it was a buzzard to start with, and then I realized it was about three or four times the size of a buzzard. And it turned out that it was one of the ones released on the Shannon Estuary there last year, and it was on a tour of Ireland and it came to Wicklow and spent a few days here, um, and I was one of the few people fortunate enough to see it. So that, um, that's very, very special. Um, there was a couple of pairs introduced um, in an effort to control the fox population. Am I correct? Um, oh, no, they, the, no, no, no. This is a much bigger project. Um, uh, initially, about 15 years ago, they introduced um, about 50 of them um, into they were taken from Norway under license, um, uh, brought into Killarney National Park, released there. And they are st they've started to breed all over the country now. Um, well, primarily on the Midland Lakes. Um, for example, Loch Derg has two pairs of eagles nesting, or yeah. um, some years, other years, they don't succeed. And they seem to be feeding primarily on fish, um, right. which they catch in the, in the lakes. So there's plenty plentiful supply there, and um, there's no threat to farming or anything like that there. Yeah, quite harmless as regards people that's so. really very magical we had um a talk by the on our project yeah. and he said that the so it would have been last year one of the female eagles um lost its life somehow i'm not too sure how so that was left with a male and um a group of hatchlings did you hear this story yeah there was an outbreak of uh, avian flu and some of the birds caught that um, but there's also been a few poisoning incidents where they've taken poison bait and haven't survived. Yeah, this is a huge... Um, but, but by and large, they're they're surviving. This story, um, um, he told us that, because obviously they're tagged and they're monitored, the male, yeah. the male was left with the clutch uh, of young. No. A female yeah. that had emigrated to the UK returned it was one of the young ones from the previous year returned to the male to the nest and helped him rear the young and when mm. they were finished rearing the young the male who had never been in norway flew off to norway 
Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah I mean, it's, we don't understand their intelligence. It's on a different. No, but they're, they are very long lived and there's a big investment in each chick because if they survive, then they're long lived as well. So they produce a lot of young as well. So, but it's very much a long term project, this reintroduction. And um, it depends on the survival of relatively small number of individuals at the beginning to establish a breeding population that is there to stay. Okay. And so it you know can take 20 years before you can be sure there's a, a well viable population. Me at the beginning about my favorite species. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's very hard to choose because I mean, every day I see something that excites me. Might be solitary bee, for instance, um, in uh, in in a, a nice dry bank. Um, but I guess you know the prize is pro probably goes to the the otter, which um, I, I've I've seen in a number of places around the country. Um, and I think they're really exciting animals because um, they are top predators, um, depending largely on fish, but they also eat a large range of other things like frogs and crayfish and um, even uh, water birds. <clears throat> but um, I suppose my most memorable um, encounter was on the River Shannon uh, when I was walking the banks of the River Shannon through one of those beautiful uh, riverside meadows uh, called the Callows, north of Loch Derg. And um, suddenly I heard this squeaking sound in the grass ahead of me. And I stood still, listened, uh, couldn't see anything. And then suddenly around my feet, I had two or three um, otter cubs that had come out of the grass and we're kind of confused. They looked as if um, they were a bit terrified by coming across us. I might have been the first human they, they saw because they were very small. And then I heard an adult calling to them from the river bank, which was maybe 20 meters away. And so I retreated and the uh, cubs went off to their parent. Uh, but that was a really memorable experience. Oh, and that's absolutely associate that with the River Shannon. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Um, I visited a couple that did otter rehab and release. Um, so they'd get cubs that maybe had been abandoned by the mother. So they might take one or two cubs a year. And they had a little a little place by their house and there was a lake nearby. So when they got old enough, they could go out temporarily to the lake and eventually release. But I remember them saying to me that you can't um, you can't leave otter cubs to survive because they have no sense until they're one year old. They have no common sense. Mm. <laughs> so they get in all sorts of troubles and they need, they need to be minded for one full year. And at that point, then you can consider the release. So yeah. that's, that was their experience. Uh, but they are such a magical animal. And I've seen them around Dungora Castle in Kimbara in the Bay. Mm which um, is quite, it's magical when you see them. Unfortunately, the adults do get uh, killed on the roads occasionally, uh, particularly if they're crossing a bridge, you know, from one side or a culvert from one part of a river to the other. And if it's a, a, a pregnant fe uh, a, a female with young cubs, they're left abandoned. But we, we, we really should remember these are wild animals. You know, they're, 
they're as wild as you know wolves in America and really we shouldn't interfere with them um I think uh, even right even you know if we find an abandoned cub I would tend to leave it because I think uh the if you know if the adult is nearby we can't assume it's been abandoned put it that way yeah, true. Uh, and the same goes for seals on a beach. I mean, too many oh. people find a seal cub and yeah. their first reaction is take it home and put it in the bath, you know. Yeah. And really they should leave it because it's a wild animal. It's natural for 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 um parent and uh cub to get separated at times when the when the adult goes off to feed, same with the otter. And uh, uh you know, we should just be patient, retreat, watch it for from a distance, you know, yeah. and you'll no, probably I, find the other. It is back. quite, it, it's a problem with the seals and leverets as well, because of course the hair leaves the leverets mm. around. Um, yeah. So yeah, non-intervention is. I mean, is the up. intentions are are genuine, I think, but of very course. often the, yeah. the the information is, 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 is wrong. Is incorrect. Yeah. And um, what's your opinion on reintroducing bigger pre predators like wolves? <laughs> I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. Um, it's Ireland doesn't have the habitat that they need. They need extensive areas of forest. They were they are essentially forest animals, and uh, you you'll see if you look into history, there's uh, plenty of reference to uh, wolves living in the for extensive forests in Ireland as the forests were cleared, and they became, you know, more exposed. Uh, they retreated to mountains and so on, but uh, they were eventually hunted to extinction in around, I think, mid-1700s. The odd one survived into the early 1800s. Mm -hmm. But um, I think uh, there are other species that uh, might merit reintroduction before wolves. Um, uh, well, even introduction. Um, one of them Be is the beavers. beaver. <laughs> I yeah. thought you were going to say now, beavers. He's so useful. There's, there's absolutely no evidence uh, in history or archaeology that beavers were ever here um there's no there's no record of any beaver chewed wood for instance or no bones have been found uh, but they were quite extensive in britain and that doesn't mean they didn't occur here they uh, maybe just haven't found any remains um but i i think we um we should we shouldn't be afraid of introducing non-native species if they're non-invasive and if they <clears throat> have some benefits in the ecosystem. And the beaver is often described as a keystone species. In other words, it can um, uh, have significant effects on the ecosystem and on, on a whole range of other species, uh, just as the wolves in America can do. Um, for example, um, they build dams uh, leaky dams, you could say, on rivers, and um, that can hold back floods. Uh, it creates uh, far foraging areas for uh, other species, for birds, for um, for fish, um, while still allowing um, migratory fish like eels and um, salmon to pass through. So they have huge benefits uh, to the ecosystem. And they're quite harmless. They don't do any damage to agriculture or anything of the kind. And they're so cute. <laughs> we well, that be wouldn't be that. my primary reason. I know, for but they are so them, but, yeah. adorable. 
Um, I, I really think, though, it could be difficult because the policy here is for species where there's no record of native status, shall we say, um, of of refusing any licenses to to introduce. So, yeah, you I know, think it would, I mean, be a, the, it would be a big step for the MPWS. The experience with, with invasive species like mink and, uh, dare I say it, some of the introduced deer like Sika um, deer is not good. And uh, so I think in in if there's any doubt, the, the authorities would refuse a license. Yeah, exactly. And the grey squirrel. We better get around to talking about your book. So can we um, can you tell me what inspired you to write this one, Wild Waters? Yeah, well, um, it kind of goes back to the beginning of the pandemic and lockdowns. When you will remember, we were, first of all, restricted to five kilometres from home, I think it was. And uh, as I live in County Wicklow, I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to stay in my house for however long it takes. So um, I decided I'd explore um, one of the longest rivers in County Wicklow called the Avon Moor. And uh, this rises in the mountains close to the Dublin border um, and flows for about 65 kilometres uh, down the east side of Wicklow and into the sea at Arklow, which is almost in the Wexford border. So it's really... Uh, takes in most of County Wicklow. Uh, it flows out of some very well-known places like um, Glendalough and Glenmalure and the other um, glacial valleys in, on the east side of Wicklow. So with a number of friends, um, I walked the full length of the river from source to sea, and including a number of the tributaries and the lakes, and uh, really got to know the river and... Um, you know, its whole life cycle from the fast flowing mountain stream, which is um, a bit like our childhood when we're running around the place with massive energy uh, through the sort of midlife period um, uh, in the slow flowing sluggish part of the river to to the, the sea where it finally expires in the, in the salt water. So, yeah, it kind of mirrors our own life cycle. And uh, I, I like that. But, you know, rivers have such a, a fascination because um, they have very distinctive wildlife. They're often in nice wooded areas going through the lower parts, at least. Um, they flow through mountain bogs in, in the near the sources. Our ancestors, of course, uh, valued them much more than we do. They They were like highways across the country where the, you know, when the, the country was covered in dense woodland and um, that's my dog barking outside. Yes, that's, that's fine. You just have to tell us his name now or her name. Uh, her name is Molly. And, Molly. Uh, she's, she's, she's a Labrador, but she's um, normally very quiet until a visitor comes. <laughs> oh, great. Um, um. Yeah, yes. and of course, they our ancestors valued uh, rivers and lakes very much for um, the resources that they uh, provided: fish, wildfowl, reeds for thatching, willows for basket making, and all the rest. Um, and then you just have to think about their value for tourism. For instance, the River Shannon, you know, um, is is a big attraction for overseas tourists. Lakes of Killarney. Um, Glendalough is one of the most visited um, valleys in the country. 
or Glencar waterfall in Sligo, which is um, the second highest waterfall in Ireland uh, and much associated with Yeats and his poetry. So, you know, they all have a, a really um, a significant value to us. And I think that value is often overlooked when we when we treat them, treat the rivers and lakes quite badly. Yes, I think, um, well, a lot of nature is neglected and not respected, but um, that's what we're yeah, working well, on. There's a, there's, there's a general underswell of people realising the value of nature, but mm, it, need, it needs to uh, mm, momentum. Well, to unfortunately, it's, it's worse than neglect because with with rivers, we've had a steady increase in in uh, polluted river waters, um, over half now showing poor quality. Um, um, and, you know, in the 1980s, 40 years ago, uh, there were more than 500 pristine rivers, absolutely, um, you know, crystal clear with no pollution. Now there are less than 20. So, My goodness. You know, think about that in terms of a reduction in, in value. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, that's giving me complete shivers. Um, yeah, that that happens so quick. I mean, obviously, I'm aware of the pollution, and but the fact that that has happened since the 1980s is very disturbing. Yeah, I mean, another aspect that people don't think about is the barriers on rivers. Um, there, it's it's calculated there are over seventy thousand barriers to fish migration on the Irish River system, seven zero thousand, and um. These include weirs and dams and sluices and culverts and some bridges even, uh, which are barriers to salmon and eel and lamprey. And many of them are redundant. Of course, a lot of these weirs were built for uh, old water mills, which are long gone, and they could easily be removed. Um, but there are plenty of, plenty of sites where... Yeah. You know, long culverts, for example, fish won't travel through because it's dark. Right. I never considered the amount of weirs and blockages on the rivers. Yeah. Mm. Um, so there's a lot to a lot to be done to restore uh, rivers, and you know, um, there are solutions to this. It's not like we can't do anything about it. Um, for example, on the pollution side a corridor of trees or woodland along a lowland river, particularly a lowland river valley, has enormous benefits um, in soaking up the, intercepting the fertilizers that run off the fields and pesticides that come from uh, cereal fields um, and preventing them getting into the water in the first yeah. place. And even polluting um, the sea. So, you know, we should Ultimately be, we should be polluting the sea, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, trees and 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 uh, wild plants in general um, oh. have a fantastic capacity for uh, taking up nutrients in their roots and uh, continuing to grow. And I mean, in the same vein, constructed wetlands, which one of your previous guests spoke, uh, Phelan Harty spoke about, they represent a really innovative way of dealing with wastewater. So, um, for example, the water from from a septic tank or from uh, from a bigger um, development, such as a village even, uh, mm -hmm. can be channeled through a constructed wetland with reeds and other water plants, yeah. which again will take up the nutrients and prevent yeah. them uh, going into the land and ultimately into rivers. 
And I mean, there there are solutions. Is it just financial um, constraints, or is it the will? I think policy. Uh, not to do uh, it starts with it starts with policy in government. And I mean, for instance, the state agency, the Office of Public Works, is still responsible for arterial drainage, which began in the 1940s with um, a, a, an act of, of the Oireachtas. And uh, there, there's ample evidence that that has produced huge damage to our rivers uh, through through drainage, through straightening, um, deepening, deepening of rivers so that water flows off the land quicker, uh, causing floods downstream, etc. And really, that should be stopped and more innovative ways of dealing with flooding, such as um, recreating floodplains, recreating the bends in rivers so that it slows down the water and and better still restoring the peatlands in the mountains, which should act like a big sponge holding back the water, releasing it slowly, just the same way that, for example, snow in the mountains in Europe holds the water and releases it slowly on melting. Interesting. Um, so how do we get this policy change? I mean, is it because the the big business with money is supporting governments? And, and I mean, how do we get the change? I think one of the um, the uh, change factors for change is um, the climate action, because um, I think the link between climate action and biodiversity is the nature-based solutions. We have solutions in nature, which we know well about. For example, restoring peatlands and restoring the vegetation on bogs um, and restoring uh, functional bogs holds huge amounts of carbon. And But it also has the beneficial effect of holding large amounts of water and yeah, preventing but, flooding, flooding downstream. Yeah, I, I mean... We understand that, but I have spoken to so many people who have small scale um, turf cutting operations they've had for years, and I have failed to explain to anybody or convince anybody why the bogs should be left. It, it seems to be a very difficult one to sell. Yeah, it's not just about um, leaving them. It's about um, restoring them. Uh, because many of our bogs are, are completely damaged. Um, the Midland bogs, I think 99% of them are destroyed. Um, and there is now a, a program of re-wetting involving um, Bordnemona and other agencies. Um, but, you know, another nature-based solution um, to climate change is, as you know, is planting trees and um, allowing woodland restoration naturally by regeneration mm. of course that can only be done if you control grazing or remove grazing altogether ideally um so, so does it boil down that to... will absorb carbon as well but it also has the benefits i've mentioned for rivers in terms of mm. um prevent you know um absorbing runoff pollution and nutrients but so is the key to it to be able to pay the farmers enough money to um replace their income to do the right thing is that the key to it or is there a difference yeah it's one of, one of the keys i mean there's there's no single golden bullet silver bullet for this um issue there are many many it's just like the climate action question there are many ways in which we can reduce emissions there are many ways in which we can assist biodiversity as well and 
really, they all should be uh, part of the solution. I mean, there are many people doing really good work in mm. nature conservation around the country. Um, and indeed, restoration is becoming a feature now. Um, but it needs to be scaled up to a landscape scale. You know, mm. in the National Park in Wicklow, for instance, uh, they've begun blocking drains on some of the mountain peatlands to try and restore vegetation to those bare peats, which are heavily eroded by overgrazing. And um, they're, de they're dealing with, you know, a handful, maybe five hectares in total. There's about 300 hectares of eroded bog in Wicklow Mountains alone. Um, so, you know, it needs to be scaled up. And, mm. and the same goes for woodland planting and for... Um, you know, restoration of of uh, damaged habitats of all sorts. But if the money was there, would it happen, do you think? It depends how the money is spent. You know, National Parks and Wildlife Service have recently had their budget doubled. Uh, we, we still have to see how effectively that's going to be spent. Um, is it just going to be absorbed by paying more staff to do the same things? Or is there going to be a change of direction Mm -hmm. uh, to focus on restoring some of our damaged um, habitats as opposed to just designating them as, as protected areas, which has happened to date mm -hmm. without really much active management on any of them. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the Borough Nature Sanctuary really, we believe, is like a beacon for biodiversity. And I think the first step is education of people by bringing people out into nature so that they actually learn to love it and then get um, a passion to help conservation. But we don't Absolutely. have we don't have these places to go. So, I mean, I would wish that places like this, beacons for biodiversity, where people can come and, and learn, should be available to the public. They should be owned by the OPW. We should have one in every county, you know, so mm. people uh, come, um, enjoy nature, find out what's there, get exposed to what's here, and then get a more of an understanding of what we've lost um, in these little pockets that well, have been conserved. You know, public land is significant in this country. Um, you know, Quilche manage about 7% of the Irish landscape, Borden and Mona, a big percentage. Um, and the national parks between them, there are seven national parks in the country, some of them very extensive. The Wicklow Mountains is the biggest national park, actually. Um, and if those were properly managed um, for nature, with nature as a high priority, then that would make a significant contribution. Um and of course, to climate action as well. So um, I think that would be the first step and the yeah. that's in the government control. Um, it's not something you or I can change um, other than with our votes. Um, but I completely agree with you that if people don't know and love nature, they won't vote for it. It's as simple mm -hmm. as that. Yeah. So that the, the work you're doing and many others are doing as well in, in um, opening up places that are interesting and inspiring in nature to the average person who has little or no contact with mm. it other than television programs and, and podcasts. Yeah, exactly. So it is a first step. And also, obviously, the work you're doing with your books and Wild Waters. Would you like to say a final little bio of Wild Waters? Yeah. Yeah. OK, well, I mentioned that um, it was inspired by walking the full length of the Avonmore River in Wicklow. 
Um, but it's it's more than that. It goes on to um, to explore rivers in general around the country, lakes, um, and uh, artificial waterways like canals and uh, ponds and um, even constructed wetlands and have a look at those as well. So in each case, I've visited a range of these places, talked to the people who who manage them uh, and who, who love them and uh, tried to get a sense of uh, what makes them tick, what makes the people tick and what is important for um, the future of these rivers and other wetlands. Um, and there's a lot in common between them, of course. Would you like to read a little section from the book? Uh, this is a short piece from my new book, uh, Wild Waters, which will be in the shops uh, from the beginning of May this year. It's the opening um, lines of the chapter on rivers. And um, it starts with a little short poem by Robert Louis Stevenson, famous poem, poet. Um, it's called Looking Glass River. And this was written in 1885, believe it or not. Smooth it glides upon its travel, here a wimple, there a gleam. Oh, the clean gravel, oh, the smooth stream. Sailing blossoms, silver fishes, pave pools as clear as air. How a child wishes to live down there. So uh, when I stand beside the clear bubbling water of the river that flows through our farm, I look up to the hill where it rises, a rocky summit called Carrick, covered in heather and gorse. Here the water trickles from springs and boggy hollows to coalesce in several small streams that eventually form a single channel. Generations of local farmers use the river to water their livestock and drain their wetter fields to ensure that the water ran more quickly down the slope. In times of heavy rainfall, the river becomes a raging torrent, carrying brown peaty water off the hill down the valley and through the village. The debris of fallen branches and leaves is washed downstream. Gravel beds are washed clean of silt and the floods allow trout and salmon to move upstream to their traditional spawning grounds. It's likely that the river has been running here just like this since the last glaciers retreated many thousands of years ago. Wild Waters by Richard Nairn and published by Gill Books is now available to purchase in bookshops and online. News from Borough Nature Sanctuary. We are open daily from 10 to 5pm. Early purple orchids are blooming in the woodland and marsh orchids are out in the botany bubble. Mountain Avon's Bloody Cranesbill and Burnet Rose are flowering in the outside living collection and the bee orchids are ready to burst in the next week. Call in to see us.